Welcome to the podcast. I'm Dr. Lori Marvis, and today I welcome the most intelligent and beautiful doctor I know, Dr. Andy Sadagi. Sadagi, excuse me, how are you? You're the best. I love that introduction. Thank you so much. I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on your show. Oh, this is the second time around for us, and it's always so enjoyable to see you in person and then speak to you. You had an incredible, incredible presentation at the Plantrition Project Conference just a few weeks ago, or I guess it's been about a month now. And um, I really, you know, we came and we started talking, and I think this is such an important topic that we talk about your gut health and the importance of a few different things. But, you know, we wanted to start our, our conversation with, honestly, this thing called bloating that a lot <laughs> yeah. of people complain about. Can you describe what that is exactly? Yes. So um, you're right. A lot of people say that they're bloated. So let's define bloating and let's um, have a general understanding of what bloating is. And that way we can help people because if, if they say bloating and us doctors interpret it as a different type of bloating, then we're not being very impactful and we're unable to help them very well. So, um, I like to talk to my patients and when they say they're bloated, I, I ask them exactly what do you mean? So I'll tell you what kinds of different things I hear. So generally speaking, um, people will come in and they say bloated. And then, so, so some people, um, when, when you ask them, well, what do you mean by bloating? They say, well, for the past six years, ever since I had my son or daughter, since my pregnancy, I gained a lot of weight and it went into my abdominal region, my truncal um, region. And since then, I've been very bloated. And when you ask them, well, can you show me what do you mean by that? They lift up their shirt and they pinch a little bit of fat and subcutaneous fat, which means under the skin and say, see, I'm bloated. And it's all the time. I wake up with it. I go to sleep with it. It's always there. And so I, I you know, and I explain to them, well, that's not really bloating. That would, what that is, is, is a little bit of subcutaneous fat, which is normal. For women, we have to go through that after childbirth, we gain a little bit of weight and, you know, it's tough to get rid of it, but that's not bloating. That's just basically a little bit of subcutaneous fat. Um, there are other people that come in and they say, oh, I'm so bloated morning till night. It's all the time. And, you know, I, um, I've gained some weight. It went into my um, truncal region again. So a lot of times, you know, it goes into the belly area. And then you ask them, well, what do you mean? They lift up their shirt and they show you and, the, you know, their belly is a little bit bigger than normal. And they refer to it as bloating. But that's actually mesenteric fat that's under. And usually this happens in men. Um, mm -hmm. Men, when they gain weight, as opposed to women, we tend to, it goes to the thighs and the hips and the subcutaneous area in, in our um, truncal region, which is probably because of the difference in the, in the hormones, estrogen versus testosterone. Um, so we tend to get it um, under the skin where they get it inside the belly around their organ. And that's called mesenteric fat or visceral fat. And it, it, some men literally look pregnant because it's a lot of mesenteric fat. But that again is not bloating. Generally speaking, in medical language, um, when, when you say to a doctor, I'm bloated, um, what they interpret it as is gas and um, you know, air inside the belly or the GI tract that gives you abdominal distension and literally pushes the belly out and you get that pregnant looking bloated look, but that kind of bloating actually comes and goes. It's not always there 24 seven. It usually happens after you eat and it keeps getting worse during the day. And so that generally speaking, so when you tell your doctor, people who are listening to this, it's important to make sure when but most doctors interpret bloating as gas and entrapped air inside the GI tract. And that it, to me, that's bloating. <laughs> Right. And I think that's a good point for any doctors that are listening to make sure and actually decipher exactly what your patient's meaning. Because I never really, I mean, someone said bloating, I just assumed that they understood what that meant as well. But that's a very good point. So and lesson of already course, learned. Dr. There's also, um, there are people who have the subcutaneous fat and the mesenteric fat who also get bloated. So just because they have subcutaneous fat and mesenteric fat, we cannot say, oh, well, you can't, that's not bloating. So you have to also listen to them because they say, well, I have this bloat all the time, but it gets worse at times. Mm 
So as doctors, we have to make sure that we're, we're on the same page um, because, of course, anybody can get bloated and gassy even if right. they're overweight. So right. we have to be conscious of that. Actually, that's excellent. So we need to make sure that we're using the same language and our interpretation skills are on tact. So yes. on point. Perfect. So, well, that kind of leads us into the main discussion I'd like to have today is regarding SIBO. So, and you know, this may be a foreign term to some individuals. So can you explain what SIBO is and yes. your whole story behind that and why you're, why you did decided to build an entire platform regarding it? Yes, so SIBO stands for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So normally we have a hundred trillion gut microbiome living in our gut from mouth to anus. The majority of this bacteria, or I'm sorry, biome, I should say, because it's not just bacteria, it's protozoa, it's viruses, it's um, archaea and bacteria. They live in the colon. So the majority of them live in the colon, but, um, and, and so there are some in the stomach, esophagus stomach, and there are some in the small bowel, um, and of course the majority in the colon, but the, when there is an overgrowth or uh, over inoculation of this biome in the small bowel where it doesn't belong, it's referred to as SIBO. So small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, like I said, the majority of this biome needs to be in the colon. So when there's an overgrowth in the, um, in the small bowel, that is abnormal and that leads to some consequences such as bloating that we were talking about and that's called SIBO now a little I, I, I do want to emphasize on the fact that a little bit of gas and bloating is normal when you eat food the food travels down the intestines and ends up in the small intestine and goes through digestion by the pancreatic enzymes lipases, amylases, trypsin, and all of these other enzymes from the pancreas come into the small bowel to break down fats, carbs, and proteins. Um, the majority of digestion, however, actually, or um, uh, handling of this food, I can't call it digestion because digestion is just what's done with the pancreas. The majority of, um, let's call it digestion because of a lack of a better word, is happen, it happens in the colon. It's actually called fermentation. So a lot of the breakdown of food of food happens in the colon because it escapes digestion in the small bowel and goes into the colon for fermentation. When there is fermentation, and the fermentation happens by the gut microbiome, it doesn't happen by us. It happens by those guys, the important guys, which actually rule our body. They mm -hmm. basically have a hundred times more genetics than our eukaryotic cells combined. So they're actually in charge. We're not. <laughs> so the majority of digestion actually doesn't happen by us. It happens by them. And so a lot of the carbohydrates that you eat escape digestion and end up in the colon and go through fermentation. The process of fermentation produces some gas. Okay. So hydrogen and uh, methane and other gases. And it's normal to have a little bit of gas, right? It's fermentation and it's healthy. So if you have a little bit of gas, don't think you're the only person on earth who has gas. Everyone has gas. Of course, some people have a lot of gas and that's where they get super bloated. And so when you have a condition called SIBO and this colonic type bacteria is in the small bowel where it doesn't belong, that fermentation happens in the small bowel. Now, what happens is there is a lower esophageal sphincter at the bottom of the esophagus that's tight, and then there is a ileocecal valve that's between the small bowel terminal ileum and the colon that stays kind of tight. So when there's a lot of gas accumulation in the small bowel, it sort of gets trapped and people get super bloated and that pregnant look. And people with SIBO obviously get a huge exaggeration of this because sometimes they have underlying problems like dysmotility, which we can talk about. And so this gas gets trapped in there and they can't burp it and they cannot uh, release it via flatulence. Yeah. So they become super miserable and it just sits there and they have a feeling like they have to do something. They have to get this gas out, but they can't. Yeah. So it's very uncomfortable. They, they sometimes tell me that at the end of the night, they have to unzip their pants and open their 
uh, the button, uh, their pant button, so they can like actually fit in their clothes. Yeah. Uh, they can't breathe very well. It's very uncomfortable. And um, they take, they bring me pictures of before and after of their belly in the morning when they wake up flat and then after they eat. And it's tremendous. They literally look pregnant, six months wow. pregnant, and they will tell you that. Um, so it's not just the aesthetics of it that's a problem. It's actually a very, um, it, it decreases the quality of life for people. They're embarrassed to go to parties and so they don't eat. They starve themselves sometimes because they're afraid if they just eat something, they get like super bloated. Um, and so they don't eat. Um, it is, uh, it's a terrible condition and there are many things that can cause it and we can talk about that. But in order to recognize whether it's just bloating or SIBO, there are certain tests that can be done. So if, if people who are listening and doctors, if you're listening, when someone is truly bloated, this distension that comes and goes, um, it could be SIBO and we wouldn't know until we do a test. So you could listen to a clinical history and patients tell you how they feel and you can determine that it's probably SIBO or do a breath test. Uh, these bacteria in, in the gut, when they um, ferment the food, they produce um, methane gas and hydrogen gas. Our eukaryotic cells don't produce methane or hydrogen. So you can test for that through a breath test. Um, we produce CO2, so you can't test for the gases that we produce as, uh, as people ourselves, but we can test for the gases that they're producing. So these gases after fermentation diffuse into the blood and we exhale it. And so when we exhale, you can capture those gases in a tube, put it into a machine and it tells you, oh, there's more than 20 parts per million. Therefore, this is suspicious for SIBO. So if there's more than it should be, you can say, this is methane prominent SIBO or hydrogen prominent SIBO. And, um, and not you can't 100% rely on these tests, uh, Dr. Marbus, because they're not 100% perfect. There's false positives and false negatives. And by the way, they cost a couple of hundred dollars, about $250. So I, I'm always conscious of um, ordering them. If, if it's a perfect clinical history, I give my patients an option of, do you want to be tested or do you want me to just pre presume that it's SIBO and go with it? So I think uh, the practitioners and patients should have control of that situation. And just basically doctors should guide their patients and figure out whether a test is appropriate for them. If the patients would rather know objectively, you could order the test. But if you have a high suspicion that is SIBO, you could proceed with treatment without actually getting the test done. Hmm. Uh, so um, SIBO happens to be a very common and underrecognized uh, condition. It turns out that um, about over 50% of patients with hypothyroidism have SIBO. And that could be because a lot of patients with hypothyroidism have obviously lower levels of T4 and T3, which stimulate the bowel. And that's why a lot of them are constipated. I mean, the bowel is not moving. That causes SIBO. I always give my patient an, an analogy. Imagine a stream that is just going fast, moving fast, a spring, for example, in the mountains. I like to go camping and I love watching these streams. You know, They're moving fast, clear water. You can just literally like drink that water. It's so clean and clear. You, can, you, you see basically it's just flowing fast in the river. And then you have, imagine a canal. In a, growing up in Iran, we had a lot of canals and there was a lot of stale water on the side of the road and it was green. There's a lot of algae. It's, it's basically, it's water that through stasis has accumulated a lot of bacteria and algae in it. So imagine how dirty that is. Imagine you would never drink that water, right? Mm. So when the bowels are not moving properly, Imagine instead of a stream, because normally the bowels are supposed to have peristaltic uh, movements and the migrating motor neurons on the bowel are supposed to squeeze the small bowel and the colon. So things move forward, constantly move forward. And so imagine normally you would have a stream in there. Now imagine if you have hypothyroidism or a condition like diabetes, where your uh, migrating motor neurons are not working well, you have stasis. And that stasis can lead to SIBO and over 
um, overaccumulation or overinoculation of um, the bacteria where it doesn't belong, right? So um, anyway, it's very common. And so people with dysmotility, for example, are prime candidates for this because their bowels are not moving very well and they get a lot of gas and bloating. And that's also in combination with constipation that they have, right? Because they've got super bad constipation because their colon's not moving. The small bowel isn't moving either. Then it's just the recipe for disaster. Wow. So those are a couple of causes. Is there other causes of SIBO? Yeah. So I mentioned hypothyroidism. I also want to mention diabetes because obviously diabetes is a very common disorder and I know you're an expert in diabetes. So um, diabetes, uh, what it does is it also um, causes dysmotility. It causes gastroparesis and it causes um, dysmotility of the small bowel and the large bowel. As you know, we have really good tests to check for gastroparesis because we can do gastric emptying studies. Uh, we don't have very good tests to check the small bowel motility. But if mm. someone has gastroparesis, they also probably have small bowel dysmotility too. And so that's why over 50% of diabetic patients can suffer from SIBO as well. So that is also very common. Another one is eating disorders. As you know, we have a lot of patients with bulimia and uh, with a, lo a lot of patients with anorexia who come to see us um, on a regular basis. And patients who may not look thin, but they've had eating disorders. Um, it's also very commonly found in those patients. And honestly, I don't know the etiology of it. And I don't know if anybody knows the etiology of it, but perhaps it could be because um, when you have years and years of vomiting food um, and confusing your motor neurons and things are not flowing forward, they're coming up, perhaps that could be a cause. I don't know. I've tried to figure it out, but I, I don't really know exactly why that could be happening. Maybe that's why there's this motility, but also because prolonged starvation. We know malnutrition causes SIBO. It could be prolonged starvation kills the gut microbiome. Just, just like if you are not feeding the gut microbiome, they're going to die. We don't know exactly what the half-life of this bacteria, these gut microbiome that live in our gut, or what their half-life is. For example, do they live three days? Do they live 20 days? Do they live 100 days? And for how long can you starve them without them dying out? So these are all things we need to figure out in future research in the coming years. But that's why I tell my patients, don't go on a prolonged fast of like 30 days mm -hmm. um, because like a 30 day water fast, 30 day juice fast, because we don't know how many of these gut microbiome we're killing. And perhaps short term fasting may be okay, but imagine these patients who have eating disorders and anorexia, they're starving themselves for months and years. So could it be that they're killing off their gut microbiome and basically they're migrating more modern neurons stop because you need a certain amount of serotonin to uh, cause um, peristaltic action in, our, in, our, in the gut. And when the bacteria are gone, there's no serotonin production, the, back, the, the bowels just stop moving. That could be it too, but I'm just theorizing this, but I just, just imagine there's a hundred reasons that could be, but so eating disorders is another one. Um, patients with gastroesophageal reflux disease can have them, have SIBO. Patients who've had previous surgeries, let's say there is like a gastric bypass surgery. This is, this is, this is why you should never have surgery if you should, don't need it. Okay. Because every time, I mean, of course, if it's a life and death situation, go for it, but Surgeries have complications. Surgeries have, um, you know, uh, consequences, and this is one of them. Like when people get the Ruan Y surgery, there's a end loop, and you get gastro, you get SIBO because there's bacterial overgrowth in that area because it's not moving. Right, anything that's not moving is going to have SIBO. Uh, patients with irritable bowel syndrome commonly have it. So there are people who are saying now. SIBO is IBS. Not all IBS is SIBO, but SIBO is IBS. So when you have SIBO, you're going to have IBS symptoms like uh, gas bloating, constipation, diarrhea, alternating, um, alternating constipation, diarrhea, and pain. Um, and then, of course, air inflammatory bowel disease is another very common cause of SIBO. Mm. Um, so anyway, there, there are a lot of causes. And, um, and, and it's important as practitioners that we identify the cause because 
if you're just treating SIBO, you're Band-Aid treating, right? And sometimes it's idiopathic SIBO, and as practitioners, we can look and look and can't find the cause, and that's okay. I mean, that happens, but it's important that we at least um, try to find the cause because let's just say the patient has... I don't know, let's just let's say the patient has hypothyroidism and we don't recognize that their thyroid is not well controlled. It could be subclinical hypothyroidism, but what an endocrinologist calls subclinical is not subclinical to us, to me, because subclinical to me means there's no, there's no symptoms, right? Basically, the patient has hypothyroidism, TSH is high, but um, they're doing well we should let it go. To me, that's not subclinical if they have SIBO or if they have dysmotility. Mm. So the endocrinologist may or may not recognize that. So it's my job as a gastroenterologist to say, no, it's not subclinical. We need to treat it aggressively because your SIBO is not going to go away. So it's important not to just throw antibiotics at people and treat the SIBO without treating the underlying cause, which is the hypothyroidism or the diabetes, of course. Wow. So that really is... It's, it's like being a detective, basically. So you see the clinical symptoms, you have your diagnosis, now finding the why, which is what I love about lifestyle medicine, right? You're finding the why, which is often the food. So when you describe um, other symptoms that can come along with SIBO, because I know there's you know vitamin issues as far as absorption and some other things, is there anything else that people should be really wary of? Yeah, most so bloating is by by far the the most prevalent symptom and abdominal distension. Which you know, I I want to emphasize that some of it is because of that gas entrapment, but some of it is actually probably could be inflammation. There's a lot that we're trying to figure out about SIBO. I'm not claiming that I know everything. If you read the literature, we're at the embryonic stages of researching this field. So there's a lot to find to find out about this field, but uh, a lot to be discovered. But, um, but my suspicion is that sometimes, sometimes people who feel really bloated, when you look at their bellies, they're not that bloated, but they have the feeling of distension. So you have to wonder whether there's some inflammation going on in there in the lamina propria of the gut lining underneath the, the villi that could be um, causing some kind of a functional pain and abdominal distension where they have the feeling, but they don't actually have the physical manifestations. So you have to think about that too. Uh, but anyway, I'm sorry, I forgot your question. You were saying you have to be a detective. Yes. And so there are other things like vitamin yes. absorption issues and other things. Yes. So diarrhea, constipation are second and third most common diarrhea for sure commonly found in SIBO, constipation commonly found. Um, Vitamin deficiencies such as folate deficiency sometimes you will see, Um, sometimes basically malabsorption of fat so they can get steatorrhea, meaning like people will come and tell you there's olive oil droplets in like olive oil droplets or oil droplets in the toilet bowl and along with diarrhea and they get vitamin a k d and e malabsorption as well because of this diarrhea so those are the common things that you will hear as practitioners or cs patients so what about um sometimes too I'll, i'll get patients to describing like food intolerances so can you describe down the pathway of foods, what type of foods would cause more symptoms than others? And maybe the traditional thought according to nutrition and why you've taken a different approach? Yeah. So food intolerance, that's a very good question. So um, food intolerances are very common. And basically, I believe that it all comes from gut permeability or so-called leaky gut. So what happens is there is supposed to be a robust barrier between our gut or our intestines and the blood, circulating blood in your system that goes from head down to the toes. The circulating blood and the gut have to be two separate entities and there has to be a robust barrier. Otherwise, all toxins that we eat, that that we swallow accidentally or not so accidentally can go into the blood and cause inflammation and um, problems and infections, right? So, um, So nature has it. So we're basically evolved to have these tight junctions between our enterocytes or colonocytes between our cells of the gut. These tight junctions are very robust and they don't allow toxins or food particles to come into the blood circulation. 
Um, unfortunately, the standard American diet and saturated fat in our diet, which we always eat in excess as a nation, and low fiber diet, which is very common in our society, has led to the compromise of the gut cells and breaking of these tight junctions. So when the tight junctions are gone, suddenly, instead of uh, the intracytes deciding what goes in and what goes out, anything that, can free, anything that you eat can free flow into the blood and cause inflammation. And so part of the reasons we have so many food intolerances probably stems from the fact that we have leaky gut or gut permeability. And so we start reacting to everything. Gluten is an example of recently we're seeing a lot of gluten intolerance, mm. you know. There's such thing as celiac disease, and that's a different story, but there's some gluten intolerance and some food allergies that are popping up where people, where people have like a list of 100 things that they can't eat, which is terrible because mm. they're so restricted. They're afraid to eat food. They get these food allergy panels and they're reacting to everything. Now, my question is, which is a rhetorical question, what are you going to do not eat anything at all? Like, what are you going to just eat two items of food, like just chicken and rice your whole life? That's what they eat, chicken and rice, a lot of my patients, like two things they can tolerate. But that's not good. We don't want to get restricted in our diet. We, that being restrictive is terrible because it decreases the microbiome diversity and it basically causes problems. So that's not a good answer. So going back to the gut permeability problem, as our gut becomes more and more permeable, we start reacting to foods and, we be, and the list of allergies grows and grows and grows to a point where literally, Dr. Marvis, few of my patients are eating like literally two things. That's it, all day. So what happens is the gut microbiome diversity diminishes, they become unhealthy, and then and the tolerability and the digestibility of foods diminishes more and more. So if you have SIBO and you're listening, if you get bloated, the answer is not to get more restricted. The answer is to get help from a professional like yourself, where people, where the underlying cause of SIBO is discovered and you get the help that you need and then slowly bring back these foods into the diet to improve the gut microbiome diversity as well as heal the gut. Now, sometimes that doesn't happen overnight and I understand that. But getting food allergy testings is a bad idea because it causes fears. And if you have that fear, you'll never heal your gut. So in my opinion, doctors should stop getting food allergy tests. And when people ask me like, can I have a food allergy test? And I, I tell them, listen, I can easily check a box for you, sign the paper and send you to get a food allergy test. But I don't want to do that. It's for your own good. You're going to develop fears. Mm -hmm. So why don't we do this? Why don't we eliminate all the bad foods in your diet that are causing gut permeability, foods that have saturated fat, uh, that's, that studies have shown to break those tight junction bonds. Why don't we de decrease those? Why don't we increase the fiber in your diet that is supposed to repair the bonds and fiber does repair. When you eat a lot of fiber, it increases the mRNA expression of those tight junctions and those proteins are made and it, the tight junctions come back. It's a slow process, but it happens. So again, why don't we avoid all the bad foods? Why don't we... Um, bring back all the good foods and let's be patient. And over time, we will repair the bonds. We will improve your gut microbiome diversity. And instead of being restrictive, one day you'll wake up and you're eating 100, 200 different types of vegetables without any gas and bloating. And usually they say, yes, okay, I'm, I'm all in, you know? And so basically, um, I think we need to help our patients avoid these restrictive diets when they have SIBO, gas and bloating, you have to reassure them. Yes, you'll have a little bit of bloating at first, but the goal is not to get restricted. And we will bring back all these foods. And at one point, the bloating will just decrease and diminish at the end. Um, and so that should be the goal. So when you describe the treatment, um, well, first, what is the standard 
a typical treatment that, that most doctors do, as I know you, you take a very different approach, which I've used with patients that you guys gave me the protocol for you, and it, it's beautiful. Um, can you describe what the traditional treatment for that is? Yes. <laughs> Thank you for, for that question, because I hope the traditional treatment at some point becomes obsolete in the near mm. future because it's a horrible um, thing. So traditionally, in 2008, Monash University out of, um, I believe, New Zealand, they came up with this uh, protocol called the FODMAP diet. FODMAP stands for fermentable oligosaturides, disaturides, monosaturides, and polyols. And the FODMAP diet was, at that time, um, they thought, because, so let me tell you, at that time, our knowledge of gut microbiome and the gut was not where it is now. So at the time, they thought, well, when people eat fiber, they get bloated. Why don't we just eliminate the fiber and they don't get bloated? Why don't we just do that? So what they did is they eliminated all this prebiotic-rich foods, fiber-rich foods that are healthy. And in the short term, people got less gas and bloating. They were they reported they're doing better. So the FODMAP diet, um, but even the researchers said this is for short term and it should not be continued in long, for long periods of time. They emphasized on the fact that it should only be for a limited time and people should bring back these foods back into their diet. Unfortunately, people didn't know how to bring these foods back into their diet. So a lot of people for years and years and years have gotten stuck, quote unquote, stuck on the FODMAP diet and they can't get out of it. They, they, they don't know how to bring these foods back into their diet without getting gas and bloated. Mm. They don't get, they don't know which one to bring back first because they suddenly stop eating apples and uh, greens and fruits and they just like literally eliminate all of it and they, they don't know what to bring back in. And furthermore, even if they bring these things back into their diet, slowly, they still get gas and bloating. So they have, they're fearful of it. So they just don't even embark on that whole uh, journey. So um, over time, they de diminish their, gas, uh, the, their gut microbiome diversity. They're getting less probiotic, so they're pro prone to problems, gut problems. Studies show that people who are on the FODMAP diet have develop a little bit of dysbiosis, and they decrease the good gut microbiome. And it also further decreases the short-chain fatty acid metabolites. Um, that are normally plentiful in a whole food plant-based diet. So we know that the traditional treatment for SIBO, which is a low FODMAP diet, is a horrible idea, right? So I thought, what's the healthiest diet on earth? Okay, the answer is a whole food plant-based diet. I'm like, well, why can't we develop a SIBO, like a diet which is all whole food plant-based, for SIBO patients where they're not miserably bloated all the time and they can, they can eat whole food plant-based to increase their short-term fatty acid to get plenty of fiber yet not get bloated. Mm -hmm. So um, me and, and my team of dietitians got together and we realized, okay, if we slowly bring in the fiber into their diet and increase the fiber and if we slowly bring the hard-to-digest foods into the gut, um, they do better. So we call it a reverse elimination diet where these people have been restricted for years and years. We actually reverse that. We bring all these prebiotic rich foods back into their diet slowly mm. and their tolerability builds slowly. And at the end of the protocol, which some people take six weeks, some people take 12 weeks, some people a little bit longer, they're suddenly eating everything they've always wanted to eat. And uh, they improve their gut microbiome diversity and the bloating goes away. It's pretty awesome. Mm. That's awesome. But of, uh, uh, Dr. Marbus, another thing I want to emphasize is traditionally too, when people have SIBO, they go to their GI doctors. Um, usually they're given antibiotics, number one, without finding the underlying cause. And so people come back and they're like, okay, now I'm on the FODMAP diet and I got a round of antibiotics. Now what? Again, it's a band-aid therapy, right? Just like the rest of um, medicine is, it's, there's, it's, it's just full of band-aid therapies. No one's getting on. So you could take antibiotics 10 times and 10 times over again, the SIBO will come back if you're not addressing the underlying cause. And diet should be the mainstay of the treatment. 
Because if you don't fix those, that dysbiosis, if you don't fix the tight junctions, SIBO is going to keep coming back. So if you choose to give your patients antibiotics, that's okay. Remember, there's different types. There's um, herbal antibiotics and rifaximine. They work very well. Um, even the herbal ones work very well. It doesn't matter, but just make sure you're looking for the underlying cause and make sure that the diet is part of the therapy. Otherwise, it'll keep coming back and your patients are going to get 100 grams of antibiotics and still be miserable. Mm. And so that's, that's, that's also important. What about the dysmotility issues? So with those patients, that may be a permanent cause. Is there any suggestions or help there? That's you a use very any good question. I, it's, it's so, it's so everything I say is evidence-based, except this is not going to be evidence-based, and I want to emphasize on that. Um, I've studied anti-aging medicine, and so I go to the A4M conferences, and I start, I've studied hormone therapy. In the anti-aging medicine, they emphasize on optimizing thyroid rather than just um, merely making the numbers look normal. So if you look at young people, um, like in their 20s, oftentimes when, when you look at their free T3 and free T4, it's higher than someone my age or someone older. So the question is, should we optimize that? And in the anti-aging world, they optimize thyroid. So the free T3 is often 3.5 or higher. Hmm. Now, that scares endocrinologists because traditionally, based on evidence-based medicine, you don't, you don't push that thyroid. You leave the TSH where it's normal. I tend not to look at the normals. And if someone has dysmotility, number one, I find out why they have dysmotility. If it's suboptimal thyroid, I fix it. I basically optimize them with natural thyroid hormone or sometimes synthetic, um, like levothyroxine and liothyronine, and I push the thyroid to 3.5 and higher, and their dysmotility 99% of the time resolves. Hmm. All these people with constipation their whole life who are on a plant-based diet and they're still constipated, they tell me, oh, they're going totally normally. They're just finally doing well. Um, people with um, diabetes and dysmotility, people with hypothyroidism and dysmotility. So I, t I tend to think, and, and I, I'm here to say this is not evidence-based and it hasn't been tested in randomized right. control trials, but I've had very good experience based on the anti-aging uh, teaching that I've had, um, that if you optimize the thyroid, you can be very successful in regards to treating dysmotility. Hmm. And don't look at the TSH because the TSH is just a, basically... When you have, when you're taking T3 and T4, TSH is not going to be produced. So it's low. And a lot of doctors base their decision on TSH, which in my opinion is a useless test. And I don't even check it. Once I put my patients on T3 and T4 medicines, I don't even check TSH anymore. I just check free T3 and T free T4 and find out, well, how much thyroid is bioavailable? Mm -hmm. If free T4 and free T3 is normal and not too high, and not too low, I'm happy. I don't care what TSH is. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Now, some of these patients go to their endocrinologist, they get all upset and they're like, get off of that, that's too much. They come back to me and they're like, well, I'm confused, you're my GI doctor. I figured, you know, I listened to my endocrinologist in regards to my thyroid. They come back and they can't have, they can't, they, they lose that capability of stooling normally and they're constipated and bloated again and they're like, I, I feel like going back on the thyroid, even though he or she told me not to, because mm -hmm. now I'm constipated again. And I say, I understand. Just trust me on this because I've been on this road like multiple times. There is, and, and I don't blame the endocrinologist. That's our teaching. You know, that's how we, you normalize the TSH and T4 and T3 and you leave it alone. But Unfortunately, in the SIBO patients and dysmotility patients, until you get them optimized, it's going to be very hard to help them. Hmm. So do you find that, just on a side note, that those who don't have the optimized T3 have trouble with weight loss as well? Yes and no. I mean, a lot of times when I optimize T3, I, I never optimize T3 for weight loss. Mm -hmm. However, for fatigue, chronic fatigue, I do. Hmm. And for... Um, abnormal weight gain. And, and so a lot of these symptoms go together, right? right. If what I find is when, when um, I've also studied bariatric medicine, I, I found, I found that people who are hypothyroid or their thyroid is not optimized, they gain weight, right? When you put them optimize their thyroid, they stop gaining as much weight. 
However, that weight that they've already gained doesn't fall off like that. So a lot of people mm. go on their thyroid thinking, oh, I'm just going to lose the weight. Unfortunately, that's stored fat at this point. And unless you go on a calorie deficit diet or a whole food plant-based diet, it's really hard to lose that, that fat that has already accumulated. But I, I tend to help them with not accumulating more weight, if that right. makes any sense. Sure. Okay. Gotcha. So the traditional, you know, you optimize the hormones and then it's back down to eating well, exercise, the traditional what you got to do to stay healthy and trim. Definitely. In fact, you know, sometimes when you optimize thyroid, the appetite, people's appetite goes up too. So Mm -hmm. you have to keep that into consideration because people become more hungry and they eat more. So I don't think thyroid therapy is a really good way of helping people lose weight at all, but I definitely do use it for dysmotility and it's life-saving. It's Mm. really good. I also don't shy away from using motility agents. Um, You know, it's very tricky. I hate constipation. And like, I feel like if everyone ate a whole food plant-based diet, the problem of constipation would go away forever. But there's going to be that 0.1% of the population who are eating whole food plant-based, yet they still have dysmotility. Mm-hmm. And perhaps that could be because of dysbiosis, um, mm-hmm. because we need serotonin in the gut for motility. And if you don't have a certain amount of those type of uh, gut biome that produce serotonin, it's going to be hard to go. So You've seen that people go on antidepressants and the constipation goes away. Could That could be because of the serotonin balance. I don't know. But it also, um, so in the meanwhile, if they're on a good whole food plant-based diet, their thyroid's optimized and they still can go, I will have to, I will use a motility. Like motegrity is a, is a medicine that I would cautiously use. Um, um, IBS medicines like Lenzess, um, medicines like Ametiza, other medicines like, um, I mean, there's just different types and you have to kind of qualify your patient and see what's, what's best, but you got to get the gut moving. If mm. you don't get the gut moving, it's going to be very hard uh, for people to get rid of their SIBO. Gotcha. Um, and sometimes that means medicines for some certain unfortunate patients who are already on a whole food plant-based diet and they still can't have normal bowel movements. Okay. So, I mean, and, and that's really good points to understand that just because, you know, we got to remember there was damage done when we weren't on a whole food plant-based diet. So we're doing everything we can to get you back to normal, but that doesn't always happen. So that's where we marry medicine with, you know, the, the diet. It's, it's not a, a cure for everything. Absolutely. And I, one of my favorite presentations of all time was yours at the plant-based nutrition health conference about four years ago when I did, or five years ago when I discovered plant-based and I was so excited and I was telling everyone, get off your medicines and you don't need anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and <laughs> I listened to your, uh, your, um, and then, and, you know, and truth be told that 90% of people get such great success where they reverse disease and they prevent disease. Absolutely. Um, but there are some people that, you know, you have that artery plaque in there just because you go on a whole food plant-based diet that calcified plaque doesn't go away overnight you have to still listen to your cardiologist stay on your stand do your all do your due diligence in fact that presentation was so powerful because you came and say i came here to tell you that my patient is all has medicines but today i had to send him to the hospital because he had chest pain and yeah. yes so just a, a quick summary real quick of that patient so um dale who's fine he's obviously i've shared his name and he's spoken at my own conference before, but, um, Dale, uh, was a patient I had in Florida. He went on a whole food plant-based diet. He was having unbeknownst to me and I had asked, and he will admit that he didn't tell me, um, even angina at rest. So chest pain at rest, which is a very clear sign of concern for unstable heart disease. And we had some tests done and he was okay. We had him for 30 days. I was with him every day. Um, had my phone number. If it was in the middle of the night, I couldn't see him. Um, but we moved him to a whole food plant-based diet. He went from not being able to walk 20 feet to over a mile in 30 days. And I walked with him too. I mean, I fed him, we walked with him and he did amazingly well. He lost 60 pounds in six months. His blood pressure normalized. I had him on Bosher meds, cholesterol dropped below one to 50. I made him sure he's taking an aspirin every day. Um, and he was doing really well, but then he ran for an airplane to, to, he was had gone to see a new grandbaby 
and was rushing in the airport, had chest pain, ended up having a heart attack. Because that is a good point. That heart disease that he manifested over all those, you know, decades of poor eating was still there. We just alleviated a lot of that tightness that he had. I mean, some of it was probably resolving, but he ended up having heart attack. And then I think it was either triple, I think it's a triple or quadruple bypass, ended up having heart failure from it. Now we're two years out. And he's still eating a whole food plant-based diet. His heart failure has resolved. He's doing amazing. He actually, while we were at Plantation this year, because I, I literally, it was the morning that I was presenting his case that he was having this triple bypass. I'm like, what is this? <laughs> what are the odds? Oh, anyway, yeah. so, um, I mean, it was, <laughs> God was definitely meaning for me to share that message. It was very important. But um, we think, and he and I have talked about this, we believe that he hadn't, gone on a whole food plant-based diet, that, that baby was still going to be born, he probably would have died because he had such a burden of plaque and such significant symptoms. If he hadn't gone on that whole food plant-based diet, he would have died that day instead of having, you know, life-saving surgery that turned into him. He um, texted me when we were at Plantation Project, he hiked up to Vail Pass, which is, he lives in Colorado now, um, and it's just incredible. I'm actually going to his house later this month for having a potluck for plant. We're starting our, our monthly potlucks that. here in Colorado. And, um, so Dale has done amazing. He's a, a true advocate for the diet because he truly believes it saved his life. And, um, he's such a special human. So I'm, I'm really blessed to have him have met him as a patient and, and learned some valuable lessons to share with others. So really, really helpful. <laughs> Yes, um, and imagine how much vascular disease he's preventing in his brain and his carotids and his legs and his in his penis, penile artery. I mean, that's these are all the other vessels that people don't think about. People think right. about the heart. But, you know, the, you know, and, and, and even if he dis, he ended up having um, bypass surgery in his heart, you know, you can't bypass your brain's uh, vessels. <laughs> so, you know, the thing is people are like, well, I, I literally, my patients would go to get quadruple bypass in the hospital and their doctor would be like, well, now you can eat whatever you want because you have new, um, new arteries. No, you don't. <laughs> you do in your heart. Up in your brain. Well, and then they reclog, right? So, yes. But yes. that's that brings me to back to the gut. So there's gut arteries as well. Mm -hmm. And you worry about, you know, ischemia or lack of oxygen to the gut, which yes. may be part of the dysmotility issue as well. So they're not getting that vital, you know, new nutrients they need to work and function because it's a muscle. Yes. So, you know, that is a very good point. Whereas in the rest of the body, the vasculature is extremely um, tiny compared to the organ, like the heart, for example, the physiology is such that if you clog half of it, the, 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 there's tremendous less oxygen that goes to the myocytes. The, uh, when it comes to the gut, the vasculature tends not to be an issue because it's mm. such a vascular because if we don't eat, we die. So nature has it. So we have a ton of vessels. So ischemia to the gut is like very end stage. Like mm. it's so usually vasculature and lack of oxygen is not an issue for the gut, but okay. what gets us is the gut microbiome dysbiosis and the tight junctions that break mm. and causes inflammation. So that that's the beginning stages. And that's the herald of bad news for uh, inflammatory bowel disease, irritable bowel syndrome, and all those other gut problems that can happen. Mm -hmm. um, and so I tell my patients this with inflammatory bowel disease, for example, you know, you've had inflammation for years and years and years, and your gut is destroyed. Your gut microbiome is destroyed. Your tight junctions are destroyed. You have huge amounts of gut permeability. You go on a whole food plant-based diet, you can't get off your medicines overnight. We have mm -hmm. to heal that mucosa back. We have to do, we, there's a lot of work to be done. So, right. um, you know, number one, what I have to emphasize is we have to get out of the mindset of reversing disease. We have to get into the mindset of preventing disease in the first place. Right. That's why I tell my youngsters who don't have disease, eat a whole food, plant-based diet full of fiber to keep the integrity of the gut intact, to keep those tight junctions intact and to keep the good population of the gut microbiome and the production of short chain fatty acids. That's number one. Now, if plan A, if, if, if <laughs> plan A fails and you get disease and you didn't listen and you weren't eating a whole food plan based diet, you did eat saturated fat and a keto diet and whatever, and you did get disease, you have to remember the repair of the gut is not overnight. You have dysbiosis, meaning there's a lot of inflammatory bacteria. 
you have tight junctions that are broken, it is very hard to repair it. And, you know, a lot of people think of the cells and the bacteria. That's what they think about. But I also want to emphasize on the fact that the cells have a layer of mucus on top that's protective. And then the gut microbiome lives on on top of that mucus layer. In patients with um, SIBO, it hasn't been looked at whether that, that uh, mucus layer is destroyed, but in the case of inflammatory bowel disease, it is. Mm-hmm. So you have basically the gut microbiome that is all imbalanced, and there's a lot of inflammatory bacteria living there. Then you have a mucus membrane that is gone. Your shield is gone. Your protective shield is gone. And then you have the cells that are broken up and there's the lamina propria underneath the cells that are full of inflammation. So, you know, a lot of, so it's really important as a plant-based doctor and a plant-based advocate, I want to emphasize that I don't want to, you know, hopefully plant-based is not snake oil, you know, sell it as, it's not... It's not the answer to everything. A lot of times we have to combine Western medicine with nutrition therapy and use it to our advantage. Now, I'm an advocate of whole food plant-based to prevent inflammatory bowel disease. But once you have it, a lot of patients, Dr. Marvels, come to me and they refuse to take prednisone. They refuse to take medicines. Well, (laughs) when you have a forest fire, you know, eating a whole food plant-based diet is like, you know, if your your whole house is on fire or the forest is on fire, you add a bucket of water on top of it, it's not going to help. You have to put down the inflammation. You have to, you know, kind of, then you start from bottom up. So I tell patients, like, your entire body is inflamed right now to eat carrots and hope that it's going <laughs> to take away the inflammation. It's hard. You have to give me something to work with. And that's where plant-based doctors are so important in this movement because we have the perfect combination of nutrition, knowledge of nutrition to use nutrition therapy and medicines, but decrease the, the need dependence on medicines and um, pretty much slowly wean people off of medicines if possible. Mm -hmm. And in the case of inflammatory bowel disease, that's very key. Um, So I I put people into remission with um, nutrition therapy, but you know, what I would do, for example, is I would use a short-term steroid therapy and they go into remission and I keep them on a whole food plant-based diet. And some of them don't ever need the big guns. They don't need the Remicades or the Infleximabs. Sometimes that doesn't work. I'm forced to use the the big guns. It's rare because if they listen and if they actually do the serotherapy and they stay on their medicine, on their nutrition, the the whole food plant-based diet, Mm -hmm. it's very rare that I have to escalate my therapy, therapeutic options, which is Mm -hmm. really cool. But yeah, so going back to your point that if you've had years of damage and inflammation to think that if you can, you know, eat starchy foods and plant-based and overnight that mucous membrane is going to come back. Those tight junctions are going to get repaired and that gut microbiome dysbiosis is going to go away. You're wrong. It's not. It's you've got to be patient and you got to keep eating well. And over time it will come. It's just mm-hmm. not like, it's like nobody has a magic wand. <laughs> now the mucous membrane, is that actually made by the bacteria or is there cells in your body that are producing it? The mucous membrane is um, made by the goblet cells that sit in between uh, the enterocytes or the colonocytes. So usually you have like, for example, if you look under the microscope, you'll have like a, a cell next to a cell, next to a cell, one goblet cells producing mucus and then another cell under the cell and a goblet cell. So, you know, in between these cells, you have these goblet cells that pre- keep producing the mucus to replenish it because you have bacteria that are eating the mucus constantly. And then as mm. long as the balance is there where there's more production than, re- than um, eating up eating <laughs> or degradation, Sometimes. if there's more production than degradation, you keep a good balance. Mm. However, if you have all this bad bacteria de- degradating the mucus membrane and you are eating inflammatory foods and not enough fiber and the mucus, the goblet cells are not producing enough, that's when the the protective layer diminishes over time. And that's where you get inflammation. I see. Perfect. So we talked about bloating and SIBO and a bit of IBS. And so now 
you have a really amazing approach and protocol. Where can people go who are listening to this and going, yes, this is describing me. How can I get <laughs> help me? So where should they go? And can you give us a, just a little bit of an idea of your protocol so people can get an idea of what to expect? Yes, I um, recommend that whoever's listening to this, uh, please stay with your doctor. This is a nutritional uh, therapy plan. It's called Your Gut Connection. So it's yourgutconnection.com. It's, it's purely nutrition therapy, does not replace the need to see your physician and follow up with your physician. But alongside with your physician, what we do is we guide you step by step on what to eat and how to um, help bring back all that those um, prebiotic rich foods in your diet slowly without getting overly bloated and gassy and improving your gut microbiome diversity. So it's just a nutritional platform. I, um, even though I'm an MD on the platform, I'm there for nutrition therapy strictly because I don't see these people on a one-on-one basis. So I invite all doctors to refer their patients, but follow their patients as they're doing the, because uh, it doesn't replace their medical therapy. So if you're a doctor and you're listening, go ahead and send your patients and follow them, uh, follow them along as we're helping them with the nutrition therapy part. And if you're a patient, please don't stop seeing your doctor. You gotta keep seeing your doctor, and we'll help you with the nutrition uh, part. Part. But I wanted to tell you, Doctor Marvas, an exciting news. Um, we're also coming up with the IBD protocol soon. Awesome. Which we will share with you to help with your pay for your patients. Um, but also um, another really exciting news is. Remember, the FODMAP diet is the standard, and so what we want to do is we've talked to PCRM and uh, Dr. Hannah Kaliova at PCRM and Dr. I'm interviewing her next week. She's amazing. She is. MD, PhD, MBA, overachiever. Too many, too many brain cells going on there, yeah. <laughs> too many. Mm-hmm. Way too many. But I'm going to tap into those brain cells. Yes. And she's such an, an incredible physician and doctor. And along with my one of my heroes, Dr. Barnard. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're talking about doing a formal uh, a prospective multi-center clinical trial on the SIBO protocol. And one arm is going to be the FODMAP, the traditional FODMAP arm and the other arm is going to be the reverse elimination diet which which is through your gut connection so what we're doing is we're going to compare them head to head and prove that um not only as far as symptomatology it works the same um at the end of the study there's not going to be lower short-chain fatty acids and there's and the the good metabolites that come from eating fiber will still stay intact but also the gut microbiome diversity is going to improve and the dysbiosis that happens with FODMAP diet won't be there. I'm excited. Oh. So if you have any patients you would like to enroll in the study, we'd be oh. very happy to have welcome them. Awesome. And I know a journal that would be so yes. honored. <laughs> we actually, <laughs> guess what? We actually, um, so we've had already a couple of hundred patients that we've helped. So we want to do a case series. So if you have any patients, actually, Dr. Marbos, we would want to include in that that study. So Mm. that's going to be our retrospective study case series, which we want to publish in your journal right away. (laughs) Absolutely. And what we would would also like to do is based on that retrospective case series, we're going to figure out how many patients we need for our prospective study. And so Dr. Kalyu was going to help us uh, figure out the N for the perspective study. So we're really excited. We're really looking forward to publishing our our results in in your journal. And, um, you know, and we're hoping to forever and ever replace that FODMAP um, therapy with a whole food plant-based reverse elimination diet. That is incredible. And with that, I think that's a great segue into, you know, what would be the last little bit of advice that you would maybe tell someone who went vegan and now they're thinking, oh, I have to go back to my omnivore ways. What would you say? Yeah, because so of having I really symptoms? wanted, I wanted to basically emphasize on the fact that um, when they've done stu- stool studies on um, 
patient uh, groups uh, or communities who eat a lot of meat um, and dairy, uh, they've realized that there's a series of uh, gut microbiome called Provitella that's missing. And these Provitella are in charge of breaking down plant cellulose. So if you don't have them, you will have a little bit of a difficult time breaking down fiber. So what you want to do is cook your food and initially avoid, remember I said initially, I'm not saying forever don't eat raw foods. Initially use frozen vegetables because the ice kind of breaks down the cellulose. It improves the digestibility as well as steam or cook your vegetables initially and slowly increase. Like I tell my patients, like if you can only eat a handful of beans, like maybe one spoon of beans, great. Start with one spoon next week increase it to two spoons the week after increase it to three spoons so just because you get bloated eating something it doesn't mean you should never eat it again right you should only restrict your diet i'm going to say this only restrict your diet if it's processed meat meat in general dairy eggs animal products that are shown in research to be harmful to the gut mm-hmm. otherwise no plant foods should be restricted unless there's uh, rare situations like celiac disease. Okay, in that case, you can't uh, you can't or have access to like nuts or something. Yeah, right. But in everyone's goal should be to be less restrictive, and uh, their diet should be more plentiful than before to improve their gut microbiome diversity and improve digestibility. So my uh, final suggestion is if you're getting a little bit of bloating when you eat plant foods, instead of shying away from it, just slowly increase it in your diet. Perfect, and just keep pushing the envelope there. What would be, just, uh, just off the cuff, what would be a good number of grams of fiber that we should be as humans uh, looking to consume daily? Right, I mean, so the the US, um, United States, um, um, what is it, USDA, I believe, Mm -hmm. it came up, came out with their recommendations and they said at least uh, 15 to 30, but honestly, I think that's ridiculous. (laughs) Too low. I get that in my breakfast (laughs) or one meal. First of all, people ask me, is there such thing as too much fiber? Absolutely not. I mean, you can eat as much. Don't even worry about counting your fibers, uh, fiber. But as a doctor, I kind of have to find out like how much my patients are eating. And I, I would tell you, the average American doesn't even get to come near to what the USDA actually recommends. They get like 10 grams of fiber which is nothing. That's a setup for failure in life. That's a setup for uh, disease and, and everything. So, mm-hmm. so they say at least 15 to 30, let's just put it this way. Most people don't get that. And if you're getting that pushed envelope and try to get a lot more, if you look at um, even our ancestors, um, the paleogenic era, uh, when you test their stool and um, you know, it, they, they got like at least 80 grams of fiber a day. And, you know, we have a lot more accessibility in regards to fruits and vegetables now because we can just walk to the grocery store and buy fruits and vegetables. So we should be getting even more than that. And there are days that I would get about 100 grams. So Mm -hmm. my suggestion is this. I tell my patients, if it doesn't have fiber, it doesn't belong in your body. (laughs) Don't even swallow it. (laughs) It has to have fiber. And if you're eating... um, very little fiber, push the envelope and try to eat more whole food plant-based. Because if if they're eating um, foods that are processed, they could be getting a little bit of fiber, but not much. But if they're literally eating a whole food plant-based diet, they should get at least 30 easy. I mean, that should be very easy unless they're on a thousand calories a day. Getting a 30 grams of fiber should be super easy. Um, And yeah. And if you're eating whole food pumpkins, don't even worry about it because you're probably getting it. I don't like to get so, um, I, I feel like when patients get so caught up in counting their macro <laughs> macros, it's ridiculous in my opinion. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I think you should eat food for enjoyment and rather than get caught up of how much protein am I getting? How much fiber am I getting? How much, who cares? That's the beauty of a whole food pumpkins diet, right? You can eat whatever you want, however much you want, as long as it's a whole food plant based diet, it's a win. And so that's how it should be. And and I think if people eat a whole food plant based diet, they should get at least 
30, if not 80 to 100 grams of fiber per day. Right. Absolutely. Cool. That is awesome. So I just, you know, as you're talking about the paleo poop, <laughs> so <laughs> it was very plentiful, right? It was very full of plants. There's plenty of plants, so plentiful. Paleo. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. It was very plentiful. <laughs> <laughs> plentiful paleo poo. Mm. <laughs> now we should just make sure everyone knows that because they, uh, for some reason, because uh, of certain books that were in, people have the exact <sighs> opposite um, yeah, feeling. That's, that's a whole nother conversation so, yes but thank you dr sadegi for your time and uh this was excellent i think there's going to be i learned so much and i'm sure everyone here is going to listen is going to learn a ton as well well so. thank you for having me on your show i i don't know if you know this but you're one of my heroes or oh. heroines <laughs> and i love you from the bottom of my heart because you're i don't know people who don't know you who are just listening to your podcast you're a beautiful person inside and out and Aww. you're totally one of one of the most wonderful women i've ever met in my life and i think Aww. that every woman should listen to your podcast every young medical student should um, listen to your podcast because you're such an example such a role model and you're helping so many people out there so thank you it was an honor Aww. to be on your podcast and invite me back anytime i don't i i would love to do this again <laughs> absolutely and thank you for your kind words and um you know my daughter is a third year medical student now so we're super excited to see her share plants with the future generations of patients oh that's so. wonderful yeah <laughs> we need the future generation to follow yes. your lead Yes, I birthed one, so one out of three. So, <laughs> but um, thank you again, and uh, thanks for everybody for listening. 